Today on Cross Defense, in the wake of Election Day, we take up a listener's question about the Christian response to American politics, and we find ourselves dealing with causa instrumentalis and the pressing issues of our day, as we're faithful to God's Word, living in both the ecclesial and the civil realm. All that and more, coming up. Welcome to another episode of Cross Defense, where it is our aim to equip the mind, excite the imagination, and comfort the soul, all with God's Word, rightly dividing between law and gospel, as it must always be. I'm your host, the Reverend Tyrell Bramwell, pastor of St. Mark Lutheran Church in Ferndale, California. What a week! Tuesday was election day, and things are afoot, aren't they? Political things, civil realm things, left-hand kingdom things— So it's a good time to take up a listener question on this subject. We have a couple messages, actually, from listeners to address, and both of which have to do with the Christian and politics. So let's get right into today's show, and first we'll hear from Tyler. Tyler said, hello, Pastor. My wife and I were greatly uplifted and comforted by your cross-defense on the Christian's two-party system and Luther's words concerning insurrection. That was the September 10th. 2022 episode for those of you who are keeping track. If you missed it, you can go ahead and go to kfuo.org and look up the archive. You can access that via stmarksferndale.com too. Tyler says, thank you for your words of love and truth for us all. They exemplify Proverbs 4's admonition that, quote, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And with all thy getting, Get understanding. I love that. Proverbs 4, 7. With all that getting, make sure you get understanding. Oh, you're very welcome, Tyler. Thanks for uh, writing in. And uh, I give thanks to God for you and your wife that you're, you're seeking after wisdom, that you've heard wisdom's cry in the street. At the head of the, the noisy streets, wisdom cries out. Whoever listens to wisdom will dwell secure and will be at ease, without dread of disaster, as Proverbs 1, 20 to 33 teaches us. So thank you very much. Tyler continues, your style is relatable to us. Well, all right, great, thank you. And we appreciated hearing what you had to say and the fact that you do not shy away from discussing the pressing issues of our day. Keep up the good work. So long as the Lord shall allow you to do so, I leave you with the words of St. Paul. Quote, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. <sighs> Philippians 3, 13 to 14. Thank you, Tyler. Thank you very much. What a wonderful word to leave with me. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, you said, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you always. God bless, Tyler. Again, thank you, Tyler, for your spiritual words of encouragement and blessing. Pastors need to hear these things as well. Uh, Thank you very much. I want to briefly address your note of appreciation that I don't shy away from discussing the pressing issues of our day, that, you know, my style and, and not shying away from that. This is what we do as Christians, isn't it? As the 505th anniversary of the Reformation is still on many of our minds, we're not that far past Reformation Day, it's interesting to think about what sort of horror 
we would live in today without the gospel of Jesus Christ. Had Luther shied away from from taking up the pressing issues of his day when he noticed them, what would our life be like today if the gospel hadn't been returned to the church? See, it's too easy for us to make theology a field of, of academic study, philosophizing these concepts and ideals, keeping it up here in the head, right? These, these conversations that we have in-house in our ivory tower, these sorts of things, but never actually getting, getting our hands dirty, never actually living it out. And that's not Christianity. Christianity, true Christianity leaves calluses on the theologian's hands. And I don't mean the professional theologian. I don't mean clergy types. I mean Christian's hands, because we are all theologians. It skins the knees of the believer who's living under the weight of his cross for neighbor's sake, who's bearing with his neighbor, helping his neighbor bear his neighbor's cross by prayer. By being in his neighbor's life, how can I pray for you? You know that? Praying for your neighbor, praying for them, is literally coming up under their cross and helping them hold it up. What a blessing. And when you do that, you'll skin your knee. You'll draw blood. The Christianity is timely, real, present. And the Christian, the Christian's unafraid to speak and to act and to repent with blood and mud on his hands. It's 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So what do we know about Jesus Christ and him crucified? That he was crucified, That is, that he came to serve us in sacrificial love, not concerned about his own well-being, but seeing the pressing issue of mankind in all days, throughout time, and addressing it in a tangible, unmistakable way, not shying away from it. See, we, we bear the name of Christ, and Christ was not one to shy away from it. He took on the pressing issue. He took it all the way to the cross. I, I will handle the pressing issue of my people. Continuing with our Corinthians reading, and I was with you in weakness, Paul says, and in fear and much trembling. Think about that. Think about Paul. I don't often think about Paul in fear and trembling. He seems to be a boss, (laughs) a stud of of a saint, right? But no, he says, I came with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We don't want a Christianity that is caught up in the philosophies of men. We want a Christianity in the trenches, in the ditches, where the people are at. What does James 2, 14 to 17 tell us, especially us pastor types, people like myself, 
It tells us not to dare put the pressing issues aside while waxing eloquent about the Bible. It tells us that that would be the equivalent of St. Paul's rejection of philosophizing. May we, may we Christians never be caught doing such a thing. Did you turn to James 2, 14 to 17? Do you have it open in front of you? Here are the words. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. What, what good is it to talk theology? What good is it to know our Bibles if we're not out there living it? If we're not addressing the issues of our day? The, the present battlefield is the one we're on. Being gun shy is not an option. We don't get to pick our battlefield. We don't get to determine what issues are going to be pressing in our day, but we do get to engage them faithfully. So thanks, Tyler. Thanks for your email. Christ be with you and your wife and all of your neighbors. All right. So the next email is from Paul. Paul says, hello, Pastor Bramwell. I've been listening to Cross Defense through the KFUO app the past few months. Awesome. <laughs> thanks for listening, Paul, and thanks for using the KFUO app. You discussed the Christian response to Halloween on October 29th, 2022, for those keeping track. Given the upcoming election on Tuesday, which is now passed, would you discuss the Christian response to American politics? Thanks for the work you put into the show, Paul. It would be my pleasure, Paul. Uh, thanks for tuning in, and thanks for the show suggestion. I really appreciate it. I'm sorry I wasn't able to get to it before the election day, but... Uh, the rest of this episode is all about the Christian response to American politics, and politics in general, really. And this show is probably going to end up spilling over, at least in theme, into uh, next episode as well, the next one too. So keep listening. Thanks for the great sh show suggestion. Let's get into it. Let's start with this Latin phrase, casa instrumentalis. Causality through instruments, instruments of cause. That's what men are. We are causa instrumentalis, specifically for the expansion and preservation of the church, says good Reverend Peeper. So go ahead now, turn your Bibles to 40, uh, Isaiah 40, you need to know the book. So turn it to Isaiah 40, verse 9. Isaiah 40, verse 9. Go up to a high mountain. O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. And how about Mark 16, 15? And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Jesus talking to the disciples turning them into the apostles, right? Also, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Romans 10, 10 to 15. Flip there now. I know, we're all over the place. We'll get to what we're doing here in just a second. Flip with me to Romans 10, 10 to 15. For with the heart... One believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him, in Jesus, will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Casa instrumentalis. We men are instruments of cause. We are part of the the causality of, of, in this case, the gospel reaching people. How are people supposed to hear unless there's someone preaching and this whole thing, right? In the expansion and the preservation of our Lord's church, we get to be instruments. We are instruments only insofar as we proclaim and teach the gospel. God could give the gospel over to everyone, Right now, just do it. But God has chosen in his divine wisdom to make us partners with him, to use us as as the tools. I have never been more happy to call myself a tool than I, I am as a Christian pastor, and as you ought to be as a Christian in your vocations in the world. Let God use you. He has chosen to do so. You are the shovel in his garden. He's the gardener. You're the spade. Without the gardener, you just sit there and rust. You do nothing. But in the gardener's hand, you are an instrument that brings about the cause of the gospel, reaching lives that none would perish, but all would reach repentance. Praise be to God. What a joy it is to be part of this process. Insofar as we proclaim and we teach the gospel, which includes also needing to teach the law to show people their sin, that they understand why they need a savior. So they see the severity of their sin, death. And then they see the sweetness of the gospel, the savior who rescued them from death. This truth, it relates to all vocations as well. It shapes the Christian in relation to the political environment of his country. As we think about it, it's pretty easy to see. In America, the Christian response to politics is very much causa instrumentalis. That is, we have a part to play in our form of government. Just as the Lord has saw fit to give us a part to play in the church. So we have the church realm, where we get to participate in spreading the gospel, supporting the preaching of the gospel, We also have a part to play in the civil realm, as we, especially in our form of government, vote. Each 
Christian citizen is that, a citizen of America. And therefore, according to our system of governance, we are to be involved in the political activities happening around us. We are to be instruments of causality. Causa instrumentalis. We're learning some Latin today, aren't we? <laughs> that's, that's the show in a nutshell, Paul. That's it, my friend. That's it. This is what the Christian is supposed to do. Now, that's going to change and vary depending on the form of government that is uh, in the land where the Christian resides. But you asked about American politics, and we have a huge blessing. We get to be a part of that because in American politics, the government is for the people, by the people, of the people, right? <laughs> Something like that. The people are the government. Drawing, drawing our authority from our creator who has given us inalienable rights, and then we have representation that we elect. So voting tends to be the short answer. Let's take a break right there. That's a good place to pause. Let's take a break. When we get back, we're going to jump into Luther's small catechism and take a look at the table of duty. So if you have a catechism nearby, next to your Bible, I hope, go ahead and pull that baby off the shelf and we're going to get into it in just a minute. Go ahead and open to the table of duties. We'll be right back. Each weekday on The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah, we share and discuss stories of Living Boldly Lutheran. Including missionary updates, mercy work, events and topics applicable to your daily vocations, and maybe some fresh dark roast. The Coffee Hour weekdays at 9 a.m. on KFUO, underwritten by Concordia University, Wisconsin. Okay, did you pull your small catechism off the shelf? You have it open to the table of duties that's there in the, the back of the catechism, well, the back part of the section that Luther wrote in the front. <laughs> you can also find it in your, in your hymnal if you have a family hymnal at home. And see here that, that Luther in the small catechism cites Romans 13, 5 to 7, for citizens to know their vocational responsibility toward governing authorities. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. So right here we see both, you know, the way we understand the ecclesial realm, we, we give offering to the Lord. We, we support with our time, talent, and treasure the ministry happening at church, and much of that is to pay for the pastor's salary, keep the lights on in the sanctuary, the, the, the heat turned on, these sorts of things, pay for our building, blah, blah, blah. This, this is the offering system. Well, in the, in the civil realm, taxes do this, and, and we can tax ourselves to death. In California, we love to vote, <laughs> vote our own taxes on us, and then we complain about it. But as we see, Romans 13, 6, for because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Number seven, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So to Paul's useful qualifier, not St. Paul from Romans, but 
Paul the questioner, <laughs> the listener of Cross Defense. Paul, to your useful qualifier, what is the Christian response to American politics? We might want to consider what one of the, the framers of American governance said, Benjamin Franklin. This is what he said. In free governments, the rulers are the servants and the people, the people, their superiors, their sovereigns. And so we might remember the words of the Declaration of Independence as well, because we're, we're, we are qualifying this, as Paul asks, about American politics. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator, God, with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, to secure these rights, now pay attention here, governments are instituted, instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. The governed are those who are giving consent to the public servant to govern on our behalf. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. We don't often talk like this anymore. And I don't know too many people who are learning this and even remember all these words. I mean, you got to look it up to, to even kind of remember any of this beyond the first sentence, right? We hold these truths to be self-evident. We all kind of got that. Oh yeah, he's talking from the declaration. But then we forget what it says. For our American political climate, we understand that we have our rights from God, that we are a free people, and that we have a system of governance that we set up, we can also abolish and we can alter. Well, how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, peacefully, hopefully, by voting, by engaging in the political system, as per your question. Short answer, be involved, be engaged. So what is laid out then in the United States Constitution is a system of checks and balances extending from this understanding that the consent comes from the people. So that the people, you and me, all of us, can affect change when necessary and keep the government operating according to our consent for safety and happiness, as we read in the end there, and for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for all, because all men are created equal. That is to say, every American's response to politics is to be involved in the electoral process, to vote. This is the minimum. This is the minimum. If you are of age, you're an adult, and you can vote, vote. This too, I should add, is just as a side note, is really what is at, is at play here when we consider uh, illegal immigration. Now, some might, some might say, well, that's not really something that theology talks about, that the Bible talks about. Well, yes, it is, in the sense of the law. I mean, the, the catch out of the bag with the term illegal immigration. We want people to come to America and participate in the process legally. And then once in the system legally, once part of our citizenry, 
to be involved, to vote, but to do so as one, like Paul was in the New Testament, not the listener, (laughs) that's going to get confusing, a citizen of Rome. And so he had rights that he was able to use for the proclamation of the gospel, legal rights, as he appealed to Caesar. Well, illegal immigration, this is assuming rights that are not given to you by law. We're a people, Christian people, of good order. And we, we, as we engage with our government, which is derived, whose powers are derived from the people, us, part of those people, it behooves us that the government is laid out in good order. Makes sense. But the particular Christian response, that was the side note, back to our main topic here, the particular Christian response to American politics is not solely a left-hand kingdom, civil realm thing that we just kind of check out of and like we don't have anything to do with it. The Christian response comes from the enlightenment of the gospel from the right-hand kingdom, from the ecclesial realm. Our involvement in the left-hand kingdom comes from our involvement in the right-hand kingdom. We're holding it with both. We're actually learning how to operate in the one, in the left hand, in the civil realm, in the state. We're learning how to operate there by what we're picking up on, being taught in the church from Scripture. The non-Christian might participate in the voting process out of, I don't know, uh, selfish reasons, right? Out of personal interest. He could draw from whatever sources he's drawn from to to participate in in the, the government process. I think this is how even many Christians today vote, from personal interest, selfishness. We're just not really thinking it through as Christians should be thinking everything through in service to our neighbor. That's what we're to do in our vocations in the left-hand kingdom, in the the civil kingdom. We are to serve our neighbor. We're not to vote out of self-interest and what helps us out. The Christian participant in his vocation as citizen, as he votes, is one who thinks of his neighbor, current neighbor and future neighbor, as it would have, as it would be, because what we bring about in our American political system today will have an impact on our children and their children, our posterity. And so we want to make sure that as we learn that we want to uh, serve our neighbor, God doesn't need our works, and, and I don't need my own works, but my neighbor needs my works. And these are real, honest-to-goodness works, like we talked about with Tyler's comment. Not just ideological things. We're not just talking the- theoretical. No, my neighbor needs my literal works from the James passage, right? If I see somebody in need and I, oh, well, be, be good, friend, be warmed, hope you're okay, and I don't help him, well, there's something I missed there. So if I have an opportunity to, to play a part in my local election, my county elections, my, uh, my state my, my nation, just by coming to the, the ballot box and, and, and speaking my voice, filling in the little black you know circles or squares or whatever they are, and I don't do that, well, what kind of neighbor am I? How, I can't even do that. See what I'm saying here? 
So the Christian wants to serve neighbor. The Christian response to American politics is to serve neighbor as a citizen of this country. That's our theological framework. That's our perspective. We're coming at it from a place of vocation. I have a vocation as a citizen of this country. That means I have a I have also have a vocation with my neighbors, my, the other citizens of this country, to serve them. And one way I do that is by being engaged in that process and at a minimum voting. The non-Christian, that's a whole other story. We're not even going to go there because they're going to vote for whatever they're voting for for whatever reasons they're voting for. But Christians, we don't we don't take our faith and put it in a box because we're entering into the civil realm. That doesn't no. Our Christian faith is always with us. And everything we do is to be motivated motivated by that gospel, the gospel heart that we have been given by the Holy Spirit to serve our neighbors the way Christ served us. Coming into this realm, taking on flesh and laying it down for his neighbor. The voting the voting is taking place in the civil realm. But the intention of the Christian is altogether derived from the ecclesial realm, the the church kingdom, the kingdom of the right, from having a heart fully shaped by Christ, by his word and sacrament. Yeah, makes sense? Okay, so you may be familiar with this famous quote from Luther. Cursed be the life wherein a man serves only himself and not his neighbor. And again, blessed be the life wherein a man lives not for himself, but for his neighbor. Luther also says, look to it, that the works which you do are not directed toward God, but toward your neighbor. Let him who is a sovereign, a lord, a mayor, a judge, not imagine that he is a sovereign to merit heaven with it. You don't don't go into political office to, to work your holiness out or to seek his own gain. You don't go into political office to get rich, although many people seem to be doing that. But rather that he thereby serve the community. And this is why we refer to, in America at least, I don't know about other countries, but we refer to, we, we refer to our politicians, our elected officials as public servants. They're not our rulers. They're our public servants. As we heard from Benjamin Franklin, the people are the sovereigns. The people are the rulers. The public servants get to exercise that out. It's very much like the office of the keys, right? The church has the keys to forgive or not forgive. And then they give those keys over to the pastor to exercise that authority on behalf of Christ's church. That's what we do very much akin to that is what we do in the civil realm, in America at least. We the people have the authority. We've been given the, the consent to, to govern ourselves however we want, liberty, freedom. And then we are electing people to represent us and to institute laws and policies and these sorts of things on our behalf. But we don't want to forget. We don't ever want to slip down that slippery slope and start thinking that there's a ruling class. I don't know if you've noticed that language in the news lately. There's a ruling class, and then there's, there's those of us who are, are not the ruling class. Well, no, that's not American. That's not the way our form of governance is still set up. It's still on the books, so we can still talk like that. We want to appreciate our form of governance. Our form of governance does not have a ruling class. We have public servants, ministers, people who are ministering. That's why we pay taxes from that Romans verse. 
we pay taxes because we recognize they, they're there to do a job on our behalf and the worker deserves his wages. He's not there to get rich. He's not there to fleece the sheep. He's there to do what is right. If he doesn't, well, next vote, new guy, right? So uh, those two uh, quotes from Luther are very helpful. You can uh, find those, well, wherever you find Luther quotes. <laughs> Google it. I'm sure it'll pop up. You can also get them from Luther's works, uh, different places like that too. Well, let's move on here. So what else we got? Uh, see, the, the Christian, this is important. The Christian knows he's saved. You and I, Paul, and every other cross-defense listener who's a Christian, I'm, I'm assuming most of you are Christians, you know you're saved not by your works, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone, right? The solas of the Reformation, we, we know this. The scriptures teach this. We don't need our good works. I don't go to vote for me. I don't carry on my vocation in the civil realm for me. Everything I do as a pastor, I do for my neighbor. Everything I do as a husband, I do for my neighbor, my wife, especially in that vocation. Everything I do as a parent, I do for my neighbors, my children in that vocation. See, we're doing it for others. We're never serving ourselves. We don't need our good works, and God certainly doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor does, both for his eternal well-being and also for his temporal well-being. Our neighbor, if he's cold and, and doesn't have a coat, desperately needs our coat. We serve our neighbor. If our neighbor doesn't know Jesus and is lost in the law, he desperately needs Jesus, and so we give him our Jesus. God, God has called us into our vocations of father, mother, husband, wife, citizen, etc., in accordance with his divine wisdom, so that both the creed's first article and second article needs of body and soul would be met. God's in charge of both kingdoms. He rules both kingdoms differently, one with the word, the church, and one with the sword, as a, as a symbol, as a, as a placeholder for all the things that the state is doing. But he, God's still in charge of both of them. And we, we as members of both of them, having you know, a hand in the, in the church and a hand in the state, living in both of these realms, we too get to carry out our works for the sake of our neighbor, both in light of and respect to eternity, the gospel, and earthly needs with the law with our works, with what we're doing for them. This, my friends, is why the doctrine of the two kingdoms is so useful to our political discourse and to our understanding of how to be good Americans, how to be good Christian Americans. The ecclesial realm, the church realm, and the civil realm are ruled differently by God. He employs men to be instruments of cause, instrumentalis causa, causa instrumentalis, for the gospel in the church. He employs those same men, if they're Christian, to be instruments of cause for the law in the state. What for? 
Well, for the well-being of our eternal needs as well as our temporal needs. Your life everlasting is important to God. But so is your life right now. We're going to take another break. We'll be right back. You're listening to Cross Defense. The word of Christ comes forth from his mouth as a sharp, two-edged sword. By that word, he puts our sin to death and he raises us to new life in him. Join me, Pastor Timothy Apple, on Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on KFUO as guest pastors from around the world lead us into the word of God to help us sharpen our faith in Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. The truth that God cares about your eternity and your earthly needs, both of them, your right now and your forever, can be found in Matthew 6, 25 to 34. So go ahead, turn your Bibles there with me. As this passage reveals that all of our anxiety is superfluous, like we don't need to be worrying and stressing about stuff. It also reveals that God cares about our earthly needs and our eternal needs. Therefore, I tell you, Verse 25, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O oh, you of little faith." Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall I eat? Or what shall I drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And here it is, my friends. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. When you, the Christian, participate in American politics, or if you're listening in another place, your politics, you are to do so not out of selfish gain and not out of a sense of distrust in God, but from the understanding of causa instrumentalis, that God is using you as an instrument of causality, of cause, for your neighbor's well-being. When you vote, you vote for your neighbor with his temporal and, and yes, even his eternal well-being in mind. What do I mean by that? Well, look at all the things that are going on in our world today, in our political sphere. When you vote, 
on an abortion issue, an LGBTQ issue, when you vote on any of these sorts of things, not only are you dealing with earthly right now issues, but you're also participating in the dismantling or the creation of a culture that is going to have implications on your neighbor's eternal salvation. We're dealing with a spiritual battle in our politics. Politics has become very much uh, focused on, which it's not supposed to, focused on spiritual issues, theological issues, issues of the mind that the gospel speaks to. And so as we cast our vote, now we're not only casting our vote for uh, bodily issues, as it's supposed to be, but also for issues that are going to have consequences on the spirituality of our neighbors, their perception of things that are supposed to be dealt with in the ecclesial realm, but have bled over into the civil realm. So your vote is, yes, uh, you being a causa instrumentalis, being an instrument of cause, I should say, both in your neighbor's temporal and eternal well-being. You are very much carrying out your Christian vocation of proclaiming the gospel in today's climate with your vote. You carry out your vocation as faithfully as possible, not distrusting God and being anxious about things going on, but trusting the Holy Spirit to guide and direct the process and the outcome, because no matter what the form of government is, God's in charge. All right, so you've already pulled down your Bible off your bookshelf. You've already pulled down your small catechism off your bookshelf, or maybe you pulled in your hymnal if you wanted to go to the catechism in the hymnal. Now I want to ask you, if you have a book of Concord at your house, you should have a book of Concord at your house, (laughs) turn that sucker to the Augsburg Confession. Go with me to the Augsburg Confession, Article 28, which you can find in your Book of Concord. Here we read a great expression of biblical truth pertaining to Paul's question, not St. Paul, the the author of Romans, but St. Paul, the listener of cross defense, his question on the Christian response to American politics, to all politics, really. The Augsburg Confession, Article 28, found in the Book of Concord. You can find it online, too, I'm sure. Let the church not break into the office of another. Let it not transfer the kingdoms of this world. Let it not abrogate the laws of civil rulers. Let it not abolish lawful obedience. Let it not interfere with judgments concerning civil ordinances or contracts. Let it not prescribe laws to civil rulers concerning the form of the commonwealth, for civil government deals with other things than does the gospel. The civil rulers defend not minds, but bodies, and bodily things against manifest injuries and restrain men with the sword and bodily punishments in order to preserve civil justice and peace. That is the Lutheran understanding of what's going on in the civil realm. When we're having our political conversations with our neighbors, and we should be having our political conversations with our neighbors, We do, after all, live in both the ecclesial and civil realms. When you're talking religion and politics, and I know perhaps your parents or your grandparents said, we don't talk about religion and politics in mixed company. It's not polite. What, in this case, 
Don't listen to them. <laughs> we got off track in America when we absorbed this, this uh, concept that we shouldn't be talking about the two most important things in the world, the two most important categories, the kingdom of the left and the kingdom of the right, the civil realm and the ecclesial realm, politics and the church, religion. These are the two things we should be talking about every single day with everyone we can in polite and appropriate ways, of course, but speak up, talk about them. So when we have our political conversations with our neighbors, because we do live in the ecclesial and the civil realm, religion and politics are, are to be on our lips. When we're having these conversations, we should help our neighbors understand, as the Augsburg Confession clearly observes, our government does not exist to defend minds, but bodies and bodily things against manifest injuries. Our local, county, state, national governments are there. We pay taxes to them, and we do so willingly from Romans, right? So that they would restrain men with the sword and deal with bodily punishments in order to preserve civil justice and peace. The government has exceeded its bounds when it assumes to defend minds or to dictate minds. And it shirks its responsibility when it defunds the sword and civil justice and peace are in disarray. Think about the political issues today. They are all sorts of discombobulated. Their, their purpose is completely out of whack. Everything that's going on is, is upside down and backwards, as you've heard me say before. We defund the police. Literally, the removing of the sword from the rightful sword bearer. And what are we singing? Seeing. Not the preservation of civil justice and peace, but lawlessness. What's at the center of this? A civil attempt to defend minds, or to say that another way, to defend by power a particular set of beliefs a godless set of beliefs. The utter chaos we're experiencing in American politics these days is primarily because the civil authorities are mistakenly trying to defend minds while simultaneously neglecting their proper charge of defending bodies. I think I've said that enough times now, trying to drive this point home. That's why the majority of the major political issues today are actually theological. The, the, the social issues. We're experiencing an attempt to mandate matters of the mind. Or to say that in another, yet another way, matters of the heart, of the soul, spiritual things. Too bad more of our civil servants weren't students of Luther. If they were, then they would know that it's not their business to prevent anyone from believing and teaching what he will, be it the gospel or lies. That's the, that's the Lutheran perspective. That's the Christian perspective. When we vote, we understand, hey, the, the government doesn't prevent even lies from going out. We're not asking for the Christian 
truth to be the only thing out there in the public square, we're fully accepting that lies are going to be there too. And we do so with trust in God, that he is going to allow in the public marketplace of ideas, the truth to rise to the top. When you have the gospel uninhibited next to a bunch of lies, also freely there for the taking, which one's going to prevail? The gospel every single time. The gospel does not need to be protected. We do not need to have a you know a, any sort of a, what do they call it in golf? A uh, handicap? <laughs> Thank. I'm not a golfer. We don't have to have any kind of handicap. We know that when the gospel and the lies are put on an equal playing field, the gospel will prevail. So, what is the Christian response to American politics? <laughs> well, as you would expect, it's Christian. Reverend Peeper, as always, is helpful here. He writes, The use of state laws and powers does not advance the building of the church, because the church is a congregation of believers and is born and sustained solely by the gospel. The use of civil powers hinders the growth of the church if that false principle bears its natural fruit. So if it's carried on to its extended logical place, it's going to actually hinder the church. The Lutheran Church advocates neither democracy, no, nor oligarchy, nor monarchy, but simply acknowledges the existing form of government as God's order. That's from Dogmatics, Volume 3. He then quotes from Article 16 of the Augsburg Confession. The gospel teaches an eternal righteousness of the heart. Meanwhile, it does not destroy the state, or the family, but very much requires that the state and the family be preserved as ordinances of God and that charity be practiced in such ordinances. Therefore, Christians are necessarily bound to obey their own magistrates and laws, save only when commanded to sin, for then they ought to obey God rather than man, Acts 5.29. Also, from Dogmatics, Volume 3, Christian Dogmatics, Peeper's Dogmatics. That's a good place for us to go, actually, as we start to round out the show. Acts 5.29. Flip there with me. Now, even before that, if you turn to Acts 4.18, Peter and John have been arrested by the Jewish authorities for preaching the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, they called them and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to listen to God, you must, you must be the judge, you counsel, you civil authorities. Churchly authorities, kind of a mixed bag going on right there, but we get the point. That's what's going on. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We cannot but speak of it. And now to 5, 27 to 29, and when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, this name of Jesus, get here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. You intend to say Jesus was crucified by our hands. But Peter and the apostles answered, 
we must obey God rather than men. The Sanhedrin was approaching the issues of their day, the pressing issues of their day, from a political perspective, literally concerned with what the people thought, the polis. Back to 421. When they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. That's how politicians are always going to act. That's what politics is about. The people. Christians, like Peter and John, we approach the issue of the day, the pressing issues of the day. Even if they're being dealt with in the political arena, we approach them from God's word every time. The Christian response to American politics is God's word. What does scripture say? How does it inform my life? Not just in the church realm, but in the the civil realm too. We don't leave our faith in the sanctuary, but carry it with us. It shapes our everything. What does Christ's word, what does scripture have to say about this issue? The Christian response, Paul, and all of you, The Christian response to American politics is God's word. Thanks be to God, that's our response. Be in God's word, my friends. Be shaped by God's word. Vote according to God's word in service, not to God or yourself, but in service to your neighbor. Your neighbor needs your good works. Engage in the political discourse as much as you determine for yourself you can. According to what's going on in your life, engage in it from a position of obeying God rather than men, just like Peter and John and all the church. In Acts 4, they go back to the church, they go back to their friends, they tell them what happened, and they all start praying for boldness. That Peter and John and all of them would be able to speak boldly despite the threats, the imprisonments from the civil authorities. Well, that, my friends, is where we're going to have to leave the conversation for now. But yes, we're going to talk about this some more in the next episode as we take up Christian nationalism. It's related to this, so let's let's deal with that beast right now, well, in the next episode, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for the great show suggestion, Paul. I really appreciate that. If you have something you'd like us to discuss here on Cross Defense, you can go to stmarksferndale.com slash contact. That's S-T-M-A-R-K-S, ferndale.com slash contact. And let me know. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, may our Lord grant you the ability to continue to speak his word with all boldness as you live in both the ecclesial and the civil realm. Christ be with you. Cross Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at kfuo.org.